privilege and an honor to have Dr. Ted Roberts and his wife, Diane, here with us today. Uh, for about three hours, my wife and I uh, were out to lunch with them and just talked. And uh, they, got, they, they asked us our story. We shared our story. And then we asked them about theirs, and they shared theirs. And I'm telling you, there is a great connection already happening here. And I'm excited uh, to have a seasoned man of God here today who has been pastoring uh, for quite some time but also has a heart to see people healed. When I was on the phone with him a week ago, he said this to me. He said, now, are you having me come just to speak on a Sunday morning? Because if you are, save your money. Uh, but if you want me to come and you want me to begin to bring healing to your church and start some pure desire groups, then that's what I'm about. And that just ministered to me right there because I knew that he was in it for the long haul. But not only that, it shows how much this man cares about the church, how much he cares about culture, how much he cares about men and women in their purity and in their health. And so I'm very excited for the word that's going to come forth today. Could you please welcome with me this morning, Dr. Ted Roberts. Wow, have I been looking forward to this morning and this evening. Uh, I don't go every place I'm invited to speak, as obviously as your pastor shared. My initial response to coming here was, no, I'm not coming, because I didn't know you folks. But one of the things I've learned to do is listen to the Lord, and he said, no, you're going. And uh, then I realized why when we had lunch with your pastor, Ben and Katie. Wow, this guy really loves you. He really loves you. We, we're on the road almost every other weekend, and we see an awful lot of pastors. And you have a rare, rare gift in your midst by this pastor and his wife. Let's give God praise for him. Amen? And his wife. Now, I know guest speakers are supposed to say stuff like that, but I really mean it. One of the things uh, this evening, um, pardon me, last evening, the Lord spoke to me is you've got to prepare for something. You have a very comfortable community here that's going to change radically because God's going to bring growth, and so you're going to have to get used to not being just a comfortable little community. It's going to challenge you. People are going to start taking your seat and your parking place. And we're going to find out how spiritual you really are. <laughs> well, one of the things that uh, I've learned through the years, we pastored uh, East Hill Church uh, for 24 years. I was sent to close the doors on the church and bury it. It was over. And God said, no, we're going to turn it around. And it grew to over 7,000 people. And then God said, you need to help. The church is dying worldwide on sexual bondage. So we had to step out of that and do that. One of the things I've learned is when a guest speaker comes, I don't know how you are. I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to open my heart to someone, especially they're going to be talking about pornography, for heaven's sakes. If I don't know anybody, uh, anything about the individual. So let me give you my short testimony in a simple statement. Pardon me, I'm choking up, thinking about how far God brought me. I guess you can summarize my life to say that I'm one of the most unlikely guys on the planet to ever end up to be a pastor. I was a total committed pagan for about 28 years of my life. And I met Christ in a bunker in Vietnam after having to kill people at close range. My wife, who is a born-again Jew, sent me a love letter telling me of her, her love for the Lord and her love for me. And uh, I couldn't deny her faith. She lived it out before me. She cried herself to sleep every night in the first two years of our marriage. And I didn't even know it. And I remember kneeling down in the middle of a rocket attack and said, God, I've always believed in you. I don't know who this Jesus is, but sign me up. So the reason I'm still alive and somewhat in my sane mind is this woman in the front row 
And I want you to stand. I just want to say thank you. Well, that started the journey. I came back to the United States and tried to attend church. Uh, I was like you, sir. I sit in the back row checking everything out. And I had this nice guy up front. He was a sweet guy, you know, pastor type. Nice little kind of milk toast kind of guy. And uh, he told about this little spat he had with his wife and how they settled it all. And I'm going, what planet's this guy from? I grew up with seven abusive stepfathers using me for a punching bag on a daily basis. My mother was an alcoholic, and I was an illegitimate child. Now, there are no illegitimate children. They're just illegitimate parents. And I just come out of hell. And this guy was talking about a world I had no touch of. I thought the church was ridiculous, and that solved it. I mean, that was it. Made a commitment I'd never go to church again. Now, obviously, I got over it. I became a senior pastor. But I'm explaining how I ended up there. Well... My wife, who wouldn't give up on me, she wasn't codependent on my problem, but she kept working with me. She said, would you like to go to a Bible study? Well, I'd figure this much out. If you said yes to Christ, you ought to read his love letters. That's what I've always called the Bible. So I decided I'd go to this Bible study. Now, here's the context. You'll enjoy this, Bill. I was a career Marine officer, polished my head with my shoes, and I went to this Bible study. It was an all-woman's Bible study. It was like slowly sitting on a tack for two hours. Place was awash in estrogen. And Dorcas was the Bible study leader. I'm going, Dorcas? These Christians are weird. Name your daughter Dorcas. She had one eye this way and one eye this way. And she said, would you like to close in prayer? And I said, sure. I never prayed in public in my life other than help. And... Uh, so I didn't know what the protocol was, and they all joined their hands together, bowed their heads, looked like a herd of ostriches getting together, you know. And it got real quiet, so I figured it must be time to pray. I'm sharing with you why it's so unlikely I became a senior pastor. This is my first public prayer. got real quiet, so I said, well, I'll do my prayer. I said, Lord, whatever the hell you want us to do, we're ready. <laughs> Sucked all the air right out of that room. Two little ladies in the back passed out. I'm like, oh, pagan, yeah. And Dorcas, she became our spiritual mom. She started mentoring me right away. She tapped me on the knee and she said, that's the first time you've ever prayed in public, isn't it? I thought, how'd she know that? And she said, would you like to know a prayer that God would always answer? And I thought, sure, bring it on. She says, just ask God to show you if there's anything he'd like to change in your life. I thought, good prayer, but I don't need it. I was that arrogant. But I started praying that prayer in public in the military, and I discovered that's not a smart move. The second thing I discovered, I was an alcoholic. I was a rageaholic. I mean, when you come back to the United States after losing most of your friends, and you're standing in the San Francisco airport and people walk by and spit on you, it makes you crazy. I'm glad we're not doing that to our troops now. If you've got a problem with the war we're in, spit on the politicians. Don't spit on the troops. They're not the problem. I was an alcoholic, I was a rageaholic, and I was a sex addict, totally out of control. I was what you would call today normal. How many of you are over 40? It's not a sin, okay? Put up the first slide, if you would, please. This is the picture of your sexual experience growing up as a teenager, if you're over 40. A little touchy feet, a little kissy face, maybe a little groping. 
only 15% are less involved in premarital sex. The world has radically changed. 61% of high school seniors are engaged in intercourse. 50% of 15 and 19-year-olds are engaged in oral sex. And then after you get out of high school, the sexual activity explodes. 50% of college students are engaged in oral sex in the last 30 days. 50%. 93% of boys and 60% of girls are exposed to porn by 18. 69% of boys and 55% of girls are exposed to uh, same-sex porn. 32% of boys and 18% of girls are exposed to bestiality. That even blew me away. 15% of boys and 9% of girls are exposed to child porn. Only 3% of college freshmen, male, have not viewed porn. 17% of females have not viewed porn. All the rest have. <clears throat> but you know what? They're just acting like mom and dad. We do a sexy Christian seminar now around the world, helping the church to have a healthy view of sexuality because we attach so much shame to sexuality in our culture, in the church culture. I mean, you can be in a small group and say, what do you struggle with? Well, I struggle with eating. Oh, that's too bad. How about you, anger? Yeah, that's too bad. How about you? Oh, I'm a sexual addict. <laughs> you just cleared the room. So much shame involved in it. So what we do is before we come in and do a sexy Christian seminar to help the church have a healthy view of sexuality and discover what intimacy is, intimacy is not being close and comfortable. It's being uncomfortably close. That's what intimacy is. We give them a uh, survey. We survey the church, and we call it an intimacy survey. It's actually a sexual addiction screening test. And we have over 2,000 data points across the United States, and we've done it around the world. The average evangelical church this morning, 67 to 70% of the men sitting in the pew are sexual addicts. 67 to 70%. 25 to 30% of the women are sexual addicts. 50 to 58% of the pastors are sexual addicts. There is no way we can have revival in the present condition that the church is in. It's not possible. You can have big mega churches, but actually church attendance in the United States has been consistently dropping for the last 40 years. For God to give us a revival, he'd have to repent to do it. He's not going to do it. The church has to deal with this issue or your kids and grandkids will grow up in hell. And here's the kicker. The primary viewers of Internet pornography are 12 to 17-year-olds. They are the vast majority of the viewers. The average age now has gone down to eight years of age when a young man first starts viewing porn. Eight years of age. And that significantly affects your brain. Let me say, porn, big deal. What's the big deal? Well, porn, we have enough data now clinically. I'm also a certified sexual addiction therapist. We have enough data clinically, and we know the results of porn. First of all, it results in a lower level of sexual satisfaction. Because when you're watching porn and masturbating, there's no prolactin released in your brain. When you're having sexual intercourse as a husband and wife, there's prolactin released in your brain. Translation, prolactin gives you a sense of fulfillment and satiation. That's why masturbation will always escalate. That's why masturbation, watching pornography, will always escalate. I counsel 18 to 20 pastors and Christian leaders. That's what I exclusively counsel every month. And you will look at their profile. There's always escalation going on because it's never fulfilling and it's always got to escalate. You keep chasing this high and you never can do it. It's never going to. Second thing is when you increase more, more porn you have, the less likely you will be to be faithful. You'll be much more involved in casual sex. The vast majority of clients that I deal with, these are pastors. I mean, 
Some of them pastoring 15, 20,000 people preach sermons that will drop you to your knees and they'll go visit prostitutes afterwards. And you have to understand, it's not because they don't love Jesus. They love Jesus with all their heart. Sexual bondage is not so much a sex problem as it is the way you medicate your pain. Sexual bondage is not just a moral problem. It's primarily a brain problem. When you're viewing pornography, digitized sex literally changes the structure of your brain. Your brain was never designed to look at that stuff. It changes the structure of your brain. You lose the ability to stop the behavior. How many times have I had a man sit in my counseling office going, you know, kicking cocaine, kicking alcohol was no problem. This is tough. So masturbation, pornography, no slight thing. Number one, it decreases your sexual satisfaction. Number two, makes you much more vulnerable to casual sex. Number three, greatly increases the probability that you're going to be involved in premarital sex and adultery. Greatly increases it. They found out digitally sexual activity when you're viewing porn. It changes the structure of your brain. It will change the frequency with which you develop addiction. The normal addiction sequence is a two-year process. They discovered now you go on the Internet, you can become a full-blown addict in two months. One pastor viewed pornography for the first time on July the 4th. By August the 28th, he had gone through all of his family savings and stole $8,000 from the church. What's God's view? Well, it's pretty obvious. I mean, it's like, duh. Matthew chapter 5, verse 58, Jesus said, He who looks on a woman to lust after has already committed adultery in his heart. Now, where's your heart? It's not here. Your heart is here. Your emotional brain, your heart is here. And it changes the structure of your brain. Now, there's a couple conclusions you come out of that one. Number one, can you protect your kids from pornography? Answer, no. You cannot insulate your kids from pornography. Our grandson, first grader, he's on the bus. I mean, he's a great family, obviously, just great family. This guy next to him shows him porn on his uh, iPhone. The vast majority, 50% of traffic on iPhones is pornography. 50%. That's how big this is. You cannot protect your kids from pornography. They are going to see pornography. What you have to do is start training your children, at least by the first grade, on healthy sexuality. You need to start doing that. If you've got kids, you need to start doing it. Because the world's training them by the first grade. I mean, it's training. And second thing is we can't legislate the removal of pornography. Now we need to contend for it, but you're not going to beat it. It's such a powerful, huge industry. It has billions and billions of dollars. They can buy senators and congressmen like, like change. They're not going to change the laws. It's going to go the other way. So it's going to get worse and worse and worse. So what's the answer? Let's have our little secret meeting of the saints, our SMOTS meeting. Our little community over here hiding? No, no. We need to become like the New Testament church. In the middle of Rome, the most secularized and sexualized culture that had ever existed in this time, the early church rose up and began to speak with purity and passion. We need to speak prophetically to this world. What do you mean prophetically? Well, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. When I was uh, asked to teach the minor prophets in the undergraduate level, my doctorate is actually in theology, and then I developed all the clinical stuff on the side. I was asked to teach the minor prophets, and I thought I knew the minor prophets, but when you begin to teach something, that's when you really learn it. I fell head over heels in love with the prophet Hosea. This guy is one radical dude. I mean, he's like in your face. He's from New York. 
He's just like, ah, you know, he's in your face. He's the only prophetic voice we have from the northern kingdom. Remember after Solomon, they split into two kingdoms, two tribes to the south, ten tribes to the north? This is the only prophetic word we have from the northern kingdom. And this guy takes this word that is just the common words on the street of the day, very, very sexualized language. He goes places Isaiah and Jeremiah would never go. He takes the sexualized language of the culture. He's like a gangster raptor preaching the gospel. You know, his hat on sideways, doing the funk, you know. He's preaching the gospel. Sexualized language, incredible sexualized language, and he speaks of the love of God in ways that had never been communicated before. Probably in the message translation is the best translation as far as catching the Hebrew, the rhythm and cadence of the language with respect to the way that Hosea speaks and the play on words. What did he have to say? Well, Hosea chapter 1, here's what he said right from the beginning. This is what God said to him. This is God's message to Hosea, son of Barai. came to him during the royal reigns of Judah's kings, Uzziah, Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That's the kingdom of the south. This was also the time of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, was king over Israel. That's the kingdom of the north. The first time God spoke to Hosea, he said, find a whore and marry her. This guy doesn't mess around. He's like in your face. Make this whore the mother of your children. And here's why. The whole country has become a whorehouse, unfaithful to me. Sign God. Whoa! This guy is really in your face. Well, he marries a gal. She goes back to her profession. Does God give up on her? No. Then God ordered me again, start all over. Love your wife again. Your wife who's in bed with her latest boyfriend, your cheating wife. Love her the way I, God, love the Israelite people, even as they flirt and party with every God that takes their fancy. Now, I don't know. I don't know that it's possible to understand what he's saying from a left brain perspective. Analyzing the Hebrew and analyzing the structure and analyzing the syntax and analyzing the historical background. I think the only way you can understand what this guy is saying, he's so radical, you've got to understand it from a right brain perspective. Now, your right brain doesn't think in words. It thinks in pictures and emotions. It's the emotional side of your brain. So let me tell you a story. My name is Hosea. My profession, prophet for the Most High God, who has served faithfully from 750 B.C. to 725 B.C. One day as I was returning from one of my frequent prophetic crusades, as I ascended the heights of Mount Tabor, I encountered a presence that was, first of all, terrifying, and second of all, fascinating. And though rare, I realized I had stepped into the presence of the Eternal. And his voice came to me, as it were, on the crest of the wind. Hosea, I've come to talk to you about my people Israel. You know the covenant that we had, that I would be their God and they would be my people. But they have fractured our friendship. They have ruptured our relationship. They have lusted after every God that they can possibly pursue. And their faithfulness is like the morning dew, which soon fades in the heat of their lust. We talked for a long time on top of Mount Tabor. I didn't have much to say. What do you see in the presence of a holy God? And whether in the body, I know not. But he took me down through the corridors of time, and he pointed out to me incident after incident after incident where Israel had violated their covenant, lusting after other gods. And his voice was like the voice of a man in deep pain, like the voice of a man whose love had been rejected. And I knew, I knew by the tenor and the tone of his voice that I would soon hear him say, and Israel shall be wiped off of the face of the earth. 
They will never be heard from again. But to my utter amazement, you know what he said? Hosea, I will save Israel. Not with battle or bow, not with horsemen or chariot, but I will save Israel by the power of my love. And I said, well, that's great news, God. I'm sure Israel is going to be happy to hear it. I don't mean to be rude, sir, but what does that have to do with me? Well, I'm glad you asked, Hosea. I want you to get married. Son, I want you to be my days man. I want you to be my prophetic parable of my love for the people of Israel. I want you to get married. But before you go in my name, there's something we need to talk about. I listened in on your last prophetic crusade. You were adroit of speech, excellent in handling the fine details of theology, but there was one thing totally, completely missing. You have no understanding of the height and depth and breadth and width of my love. Your love is parochial. It's religious. It's in little tiny boxes. Therefore, to prepare you to be my spokesman, I will have to take you through the crucible of domestic difficulties. It's called marriage. Anyone ever been there? I thought, well, that just doesn't sound like a bad deal to me. God, have an almighty, sovereign God select your bride. In fact, I was just talking to myself recently. Self, you know, it's time for you to get married. And God, I know just the gal. Woo, she's a Hebrew fox. Wow, what a looker. Wow, great gal. And she comes from a good Jewish family, a prophet's home. She's been to all my prophetic crusades. In fact, she helped me pass out Ten Commandment tracts in the last prophetic crusade. She's a gal for me. Woo, can't wait, God. God said, I know the woman you speak thereof. She will make someone a great wife. But she's not the lady I've selected for you. The lady I've selected from you does not come from a great Hebrew home. She doesn't come from a prophet's household. She's a whore. She's a temple prostitute in the temple of Baal. Can you comprehend what those words did to my soul, how they ripped across the very fabric of my being? God was asking me to do something I could not do, I would not do. I would not be part of this travesty. I will not bring such shame upon the prophetic community. No. No, I will never do it. I'd rather die with dignity than live with disgrace. And I braced myself because I knew I was talking to a holy God. I knew soon death would run me right over. So I braced myself. I said, come on, death, bring it on. So I stood there for about 45 minutes and finally opened one eye, looking for that pale rider of death. He was nowhere in sight. Open the other eye, trying to sense the presence of God. He was nowhere in sight. That's when I thought it was time to make a strategic retreat. And that's when he said, her name is Gomer. Gomer, God, who would want to marry a woman by the name of Gomer? Can't you find someone else? Her name is Gomer, and I want you to marry her. Well, you better give me a good reason for that, God. I mean, what am I going to tell the prophetic community? What am I going to tell mom and dad, huh? What am I going to tell the flock? Uh, a pastor went away in a retreat, and God told him to go marry a topless dancer. Right, that's going to go over really good. And after all, didn't you say that everything should be done for your glory? What glory do you get when a prostitute and a prophet come together? What glory do you get when wretchedness and righteousness come together? What glory do you get when the celestial and the terrestrial come together? What glory do you get when the divine and the trash come together? What glory do you get? 
that's when I learned a very important lesson. God said, you know, when we started this partnership, I told you I was senior partner. That means sometimes I'll make decisions and I won't bother to consult you. Sometimes there's no pre-flight briefing. I'll just say, follow me. And the challenge for you at that point is a challenge of faith. Not faith, do you understand how it's going to work out? Not faith, does it make sense? Not faith, is it practical? But can you trace my heart when you can't trace my hand? Will you trust my heart when you can't trace my hand? Besides that, Hosea, you need to understand something. I do not submit to find decisions to the limited scrutiny of mankind. When you're ready to obey, we'll talk. It took me a while. I said, okay, God, I'll marry her. You know, it's interesting. Once you start walking down the highway of obedience, God starts talking to you. Starts making sense. He said, let me tell you why I'm bringing a prostitute and a prophet together. Here's the reason I'm doing it. So the world would understand that I love the unlovely. So that all the gomers of human history, all the guy gomers and all the gal gomers of human history would understand I love the unlovely. You can break God's heart, but you can't break his love. You can break his heart, but you can't break his love. And I'm so glad he loved that gal. Woo. She tried so hard. My goodness, that girl tried. Woo. I mean, she tried so hard, but the people down at the church would never let her forget her past. So they'd come and gather around in little groups, and she'd walk in the church, and they'd say, oh, here comes old, you know what they used to call her. She tried so hard, though. God, give it to her. I mean, she tried. She went out shopping one day, came back with her arms full of packages and said, Hosea, look, 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 I changed my hairstyle. I'm not a hooker anymore. I'm a prophet's wife. I've got some new dresses with longer hems. I'm not a hooker anymore. I'm a prophet's wife. But the people down at the church would never let her forget her past. And she was caught between a vicious pull and a violent push push of their self-righteousness and the pull of her past. One day, she was gone. They pushed her out the door. And I had three small children to care for now. And I was man of God. Finally, it took me a couple of months that I said I was going to have it out with God. So I went up on top of Mount Tabor. He was waiting for me. But I decided I'd get the first words in. I said, God, I told you that woman. He said, shush, sit down, son. We need to talk. I have one question for you. What is it? Do you love her? <laughs> Do I love her? Are you kidding, God? Are you serious? The woman who publicly humiliated me, the one who made me the laughing stock of the prophetic community, do I love her? Yeah, do you love her? Well, God, is there anyone else up here but you and me? No, it's just us. God, I love her. I don't understand it, but I love her with all my heart. That's when God said, good, now you're ready to go tell my people who are called by my name. If they will repent and turn from their evil ways, I will bring healing to their land. Now you're finally ready. You love like I do. And I went running, stumbling, falling down off the side of that mountain, got to the bottom, about ready to take off. And God said, one more thing. What, God? Well, let's understand why I'm sending you. Not only that the unlovely would know that I love them, but so that the forgiven would learn how to forgive. Because you were forgiven, but you didn't know how to forgive. 
You had a form of self-righteousness. That's why I'll bring you next to people that are very different from you so that what's down in your soul can become visible. You can really see what's true about you by the way you react to people that are quite different from you. So you had a form of righteousness, but it was self-righteousness, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Not to leave everybody blind and toothless. Let me step out of Hosea's sandals for a moment. In light of the culture that we're living in, let me ask you a question. Are you sexually normal? Well, how am I going to know that? Well, I just happened to brought a couple questions along. Question number one, I believe that sex should come naturally. Well, duh, yes, of course. The birds do it. The bees do it. This is the Nike motto. Do it. That's what our culture says. Just do it. Well, we're just going to do it. It's natural. That's the biological view of sexuality. You realize how different we are? The female of our species is the only female in any species that can have multiple climaxes any time of the year. Now, there are a few scientists that contend that there's a specific species of giant elk ape that she can have a climax. But they can't prove it, and she's not talking. <laughs> See, if sex was just biological for us, God would have constructed women that way. Sex for us is mostly brain. It's mostly mental. Because God's designed sex for intimacy, not just intercourse. A world of difference. A world of difference. Because at the heart of, of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there's intimacy. The only place on this planet that the image of God is seen is in a covenant relationship between a husband and a wife or in healthy relationships of single in the church. You don't see the image of God anywhere else. You see his handiwork, but you don't see the image. That's why hell hates the image of God. He will do everything under his power to deface it. That's why pornography is driven by the forces of hell. Second question. Well, the first one's obviously yes. I believe that the best sex should be spontaneous. Well, of course, yes, of course, sure, yeah, right. You see her across the dance floor. Oh, got to have her, got to have her. I can't help myself, can't help myself. Well, how much responsibility is there in that kind of response? Zero. You'd be amazed at the number of pastors that I've counseled that have affairs. And I don't even try not to laugh anymore. I just openly laugh when they say it. Well, I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> you couldn't help yourself. You're right, right? You hid all that money from your wife. You had to plan plan and schedule time with this gal and you had to cover your tracks all if you'd taken that much money that much time that much energy and you invested in your marriage you'd have a great marriage by now great sex is hard work it's never spontaneous it's hard work real intimate love is hard hard work it's not being comfortable and close it's being uncomfortably close god designed it that way well next you may not admit it, but do you use your partner's sexual response to you as a measure of your sexual adequacy? Well, that's one that guys would go, yes, but I'm not telling anybody. Of course. Now, obviously, you need to be responsive to your wife and be sensitive to her sexual responsive cycle. But if you make your ego structure predicated on her sexual response to you, welcome to hell. Welcome to erectile dysfunction. I wonder why Viagra is selling like crazy. All the pornography and the way we structure our relationships. 
we got to medicate our brains out or get the blood flow going elsewhere or whatever. Next question. You tend to focus on intercourse, and I know what the guys are thinking, especially if they're single. Is there any other option? Well, that's because you've got a problem. So you have ten times the level of testosterone in your body and only one-fifth the level of estrogen that a woman has. When I share that in groups, guys, I say, that's the culprit. And what do you mean by culprit? Well, they took some rhesus monkeys, and what they did is they took the female species of that monkey, and they pumped them full of testosterone up to the adult male level of the, of the, of the, the monkey, the testosterone of the males. And guess what? They started acting sexually like male monkeys. Now, when I share that with a group of guys, hands start going up. Uh, Dr. Roberts? Yes, sir. Where can I get some of that? <laughs> Put that in my wife's tea in the morning. We'd have a great day. <laughs> well, there's a couple problems. In about six months, she'd be shaving with you. <laughs> and in about a year, she'd be arm wrestling with you and whooping you. <laughs> Scripture's pretty clear. The number one word that God uses to describe sexual relationship between a man and a woman is that they knew each other. Yada, to know each other. It's not about getting the plumbing right. Anybody can do that. It's about getting the heart right. Sexuality, God designed it to be very, very spiritual. That's why the enemy is taking it in such captivity. Okay, number five, we've got four yeses. You tend to confuse hormone prime with sexual prime. And some of you are going, what's he talking about, Martha? Well, the highest level you'll ever have in your body as a man of testosterone is when you're, what, 19 years of age. 19 years of age, you've got a squirting out of both sides of your head. You're responding to a woman. Any woman, you just, you're, the average teenage guy thinks of sex every 52 seconds. And in this sexualized culture, it's probably every 25 seconds. So he's just constantly being bombarded. The hormone prime for a woman is at what age? 35. That's when she's at her hormone prime. So see if this guy is 19, 20 years old, and he's been masturbating his brains out, and he gets married, he's quick fix Charlie. Okay, he's got to have his stuff right now. And the wife's going, was that it? Is that, is that all there is to it? And she eventually learns to shut down sexually. That's why 20 to 30% of women in America who are married never have climax because the husband is so focused on himself. See, hormone prime and sexual prime are a world of difference. Sexual prime, if we're going to define intimacy the way the scripture does, is to be vulnerable to each other and let someone see the deep woundedness and warts in your soul at close range. You're not going to be able to do that when you're 20 because you don't even know yourself yet. Your prefrontal cortex, the front part of your brain, is not fully developed until you're 25. How are you going to know yourself? So sexual prime is going to be 40, 50, 60 years of age where you really know each other. So I guess you can put it this way. Your cellulite level probably equalizes your sexual level. That gives you older folks a lot of hope. That gives you a lot to look forward to. But you've got to deal with your stuff. Sexuality is about your heart. It's not about your genitals. Well, how did Hosea's story end? We want to learn how to speak to this culture. Sexual, it's not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. And God's setting things up for the end times. The church is either going to wake up and become a passionate, beautiful bride of Christ, or she's going to be irrelevant. 
should be absolutely irrelevant. And this, this issue is one of the most important of all. And this is the one issue the church is not talking about. Other than don't, stop it, pray more, read your Bible more. How's that working for you? It's not working. When 67 to 70% of guys sitting in a pew this morning are sexual addicts, it's not working at all. That's why peer desire groups are absolutely crucial. If you're struggling with this issue, you're battling masturbation on and off, let me tell you something. You'll never win the battle alone. Because what it is, is you're medicating the pain of your past and you have to be healed in community because you were wounded in community. If you don't deal with it, listen, I have to deal with guys that are 50, 60 years old. And the older you get, the harder it is to deal with. It's like breaking up concrete walls in your brain. When I can get a guy that's in his 20s and help him to start walking out of this, it's much quicker. You get older, it gets worse and worse and worse, and you get more and more disassociated. Well, how did the story end? Well, we have enough information to put the pieces together. We don't have the exact details. This is kind of the way I see it. Hosea's out working in the barley field. Got three small children he's trying to raise. And he's at one end of the field in the tent where the kids are playing is on the other end of the field, and he hears his voice. Hosea! Hosea! He can't see who it is. So he puts his sack down and walks over to where the tent is. And it's a member of the prophetic community. And he says, Hosea, I was just down at the marketplace. And your wife, she's so burnt out as a hooker, she's being sold as a common slave. Don't know what you'll do with it, just thought you'd like to know the information. And walks off. Hosea goes into his tent so he can have some privacy from his kids. Falls down on his knees and says, God, what now? What do you want me to do now? God says, I thought you said you loved her. Well, I do. Then go get her. Stands up, puts his prophetic regalia on him, starts proceeding into the village. And it's obvious that this guy that told him, he told everyone else, but there's little groups of people, and they're whispering as he goes, there's Hosea, he's going to have the last laugh. There's Hosea, he's going to stick the bony finger of judgment in his wife's face. And Hosea's going, but they don't know my heart. And he turns the corner and the auctioneer says, hey, guys, we got an old burnout hooker here. She's not worth much. Anyone want to bid anything on her? And he has to suffer the indignity of listening to other men bid on his wife. Ah, I'll give six shekels for her. Another guy says seven. Hosea says eight. They realize he's interested. The bidding war's on. Nine, ten, eleven. Hosea says twelve, thirteen, fourteen shekels. He didn't have much left. Fifteen and a half shekels of barley. He sold to the highest bidder. And this is the way I picture it. He goes up to the auction block, and his wife is standing there totally naked. She would have no clothing on. Totally, completely humiliated and shamed. And he goes up, and he takes his robe and covers her. Takes his prophetic robe off and covers the nakedness of his wife, just like Christ covers your sin on an ongoing basis. He helps her step down off the auction block. She stumbles and falls. She looks up at him. She says, I'm so sorry, Hosea. I don't deserve to be your wife. Can I be your slave? And you've got to catch the character of this guy. I picture him standing back a little bit and saying, Girl, I don't need a slave. I need a wife. My children don't need a slave. They need a mother. Let me love you. <laughs> Let me love you. I think it took him probably four or five, six months to finally get it. God, that's the way you love me, isn't it? Because if you notice this, the closer you get to Jesus, the more conscious you are of what? Your sin. 
not because he's pointing it out, but because of the presence of his glory, begins to light dark areas of your life you never even noticed before. How are we going to minister to this world in this kind of a situation? Remember, I was filling a clinical report out for one pastor. He destroyed his ministry, destroyed his children, destroyed his marriage, and he wasn't getting it. He walked out of the office, and I started crying. Then I collapsed on the floor, and I started crying. Then I curled into the fetal position. I started bawling my guts out. And I said, God, what's going on here? Never forget what he said. He says, now, Ted, you're learning to love addicts the way I love them. Church has got to start loving like that with grace and truth. 100% grace, 100% truth. And we need to understand something. I close with this. You need to realize we're all addicts. We're all designed to be addicted to God, but we substitute anything and everything else but God. I look at my appointment calendar. Friday morning at 7 o'clock, I've got an appointment with, uh, I'll call his name Joe. He's a cocaine addict, sex addict, cocaine addict. I'm going, this is going to hurt. <sighs> I'm not looking forward to this. So I drive up, and there's Joe. He's smiling from here to here. He's pickup trucks there. He's a construction guy, and he's going, hi, Dr. Roberts, how you doing? I says, how you doing, Joe? He says, I'm doing great. I did what you told me to do. Things are going really great. I went, that's interesting, Joe. Why are you here? He says, well, I think I'm here to bless you. God told me to come bless you. I said, well, what does that look like, Joe? I'll never forget it. He says, I think God told me to come and wash your feet. I said, Joe, it's Oregon. It's 7 o'clock in the morning. It's raining. It's cold. He says, I know. I heated the water. Okay, you got me. Well, he walked into my office. He put the bucket down, and he, he looked up at me, and he said, I, I put some Epsom salts in there from Israel. I know how much you love Israel. And uh, he started taking my socks and shoes off, and I'm struggling. I mean, I'm really just, and God says, Ted, why are you struggling? Now, God never asks questions for information. He is really smart. I mean, he's scary smart. He's hoping, duh, McFly, will you get it? I'm going, because I'm not in control. I'm addicted to control. Because I've had so much trauma in my life that I have to control things so I'll feel safe. He says, I know. That's why it's so hard for me to love you. You won't let me love you. And I remember I had said, okay, God, go ahead. Right about then, Joe was washing my feet. He looked up and he said, he says, Pastor, he says, I think I have a prophetic word for you. And I love it when someone says, I think I've got a prophetic word for you. I hate it after service one. I've got a prophetic word for you. All right. Stand right over here. Take a number. It's like Baskin Robbins, Okay. But he says, I think I have a prophetic word for you. I said, okay, Joe, what is it? He says, well, I, I think I heard God say when you're in your mother's womb, I saw how you struggled for life. And I loved your warrior's heart. Joe had no idea. I got a scar on my left side where my mother strapped her stomach down so she wouldn't show that she was pregnant. Almost killed me. And what was God doing? He's going, Gotcha. Before you were born, son, I set my heart to love you. And I will never leave you or forsake you. Even when you were doing crazy stuff, I was there weeping for you. I love you. 
with all my heart, and I'll never stop loving you. Big turning point in my life. That's what we need. We need to love people in our culture, not pointing a finger of judgment at them, but an open hand of grace with help, not just a simple prayer. That's good, but we need help that really works in people's lives. Let's pray together. I don't know where you are this morning. But let me ask this question. Have you said yes to this magnificent Christ yet? Maybe you've always seen God as a traffic cop in heaven ready to write you a ticket. Nothing could be further from the truth. He took the hit for you. I know it's impossible for that to be true, but it's true. It's too good to be true. I know it doesn't make sense, but it's true. Is it time for you to say yes to this magnificent Christ?